Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Dr. Andrew Thomas. He's a senior lecturer of psychology at Swansea University, whose research focuses on sex differences and relationship preferences from an evolutionary perspective. Evolution explains a large portion of why we like the things we like, who we're attracted to, why we fall into and out of love, how our mental state affects our mating strategies. Therefore, if you are a human who ever intends on being in a relationship, this might be useful. Expect to learn the five evolutionary theories which explain much of human mating, whether ChatGPT can correctly predict what traits men and women like most in each other, how many previous sexual partners people say they want in their current partner, how many men and women in the West are open to polyamorous relationships, how sexual arousal can ruin a faithful relationship, and much more. Some really cool, cutting-edge evolutionary psychology stuff here, and Andrew is pumping out research and papers at a terrifying rate. I, I think you're going to absolutely love him. So yeah, get ready for this one. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Things that you used to do in a day are taking a week. You're drowning so much, you've now promoted your dog from company mascot to customer service representative. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,025 and 1. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, that is the 25th year anniversary of NetSuite. 25 years of helping businesses to do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system. With one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash modern. That's netsuite.com slash modern to get your own KPI checklist today. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult and Crafted London have nailed it. They're the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, and gym-proof. They've got custom designs in gold and silver, necklaces, chains, pendants, bracelets, rings, and earrings. If you've seen me on any of the big cinema episodes on YouTube wearing a necklace, it will always be from Crafted. I absolutely love it. It works with formal wear, casual wear, whether it's daytime or nighttime. All of the pieces are super high quality. The designs are great, and uh, I love them. That's It's all I wear. Also, they have an unlimited lifetime guarantee so if your piece breaks for any reason at any point during the entire life of the product they will give you a new one for free get a 15 percent discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cd wisdom and using the code mw15 at checkout that's bit.ly slash letter c letter d wisdom and mw15 at checkout this episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've worn Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything 24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand, and fantastically usable data. It's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop, and that is why it's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free 
Pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap. Plus, you get your first month for free and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Andrew Thomas. I absolutely love your writing, man. Your Psychology Today articles are fantastic. Congratulations. Oh, brilliant. And am I right in thinking um, I'm the first Welsh person you've had on your show? I've heard that. That was the rumor. Oh, that would be a very interesting start. I don't know. Um, sometimes people are like secret Welsh, secret Welshies, you know? Yes. Yeah. I'll have to just, let's just transition that to a ruggedly handsome Welsh person. Sure. Abs- yep. I'm Ab- sure that's, complete that's win, the first. As far yeah. as I'm concerned. And Absolutely. also the first openly Welsh person. We can definitely <laughs> take that. You didn't used to identify as Welsh and now identify as something else. You're openly Welsh. Yeah, I, I don't think the identity politics has hit uh, Welsh identity yet. Uh, give it, give it it's a co- little, it's coming for you soon. Bit. Hold on tight. Uh, so you just wrote this great article explaining five evolutionary theories that everyone should know to understand how relationships work. Yeah. Evolutionary mismatch. What's that? So evolutionary mismatch is this idea that... Um, our psychology evolved, um, you know, and has remained relatively stable over the last hundred thousand years. So it's this idea that society has moved quicker than our biology has been able to cope with it. So for most modern problems, we're approaching them with a, a, a Stone Age brain, um, and yeah, it's something which, in my uh, my teaching at Swansea, I try to apply that quite a bit to, to mating because a lot of stuff that we have in the in the modern environment is just something that um, it makes more sense when you sort of figure out that your brain is trying to cope with it <laughs> rather than being able to master it because it's such a novel novel thing that it's not used to. What would be an example of that? So I think a really good the, the best example of that is just sheer choice overload. Right. So if you think about uh, ancestral human populations, there's some debate over the number, but, um, you know, Dunbar's number is like 150 people. Um, Nowadays, we have access to almost limitless numbers of people. Um, It leads to a lot more superficial relationships um, when and I mean, like friends and family. Uh, but also when you go online onto dating websites, it looks like there's this unlimited pool of potential options. Um, and that leads to all sorts of crazy things like um, people having to use sort of one characteristic to narrow down the playing field. So dating, I, th- I think, has become a lot more univariate rather than multivariate. So historically, you'd meet up with someone, you see the whole person, you take in their physical attractiveness, you also take in other things about them. Um, and nowadays, we don't even get to that point where we can make a holistic judgment because we're doing things like, oh, they're not six foot, so uh, that that's it, they're off the radar. Um, I always like to... It's really interesting, actually. So some of some of the research that I've done with um, 
Peter Jonason has actually shown how people then kind of compensate with that because we have we're going to publish this stuff on height. But if you get the the dating website data, it's really interesting, and you plot up what what guys' heights are. You get this really weird distribution where it's a normal distribution until you hit five, ten, five, eleven, and six foot. In which case, it drops on all of those, and then suddenly you get this big influx of everyone saying they're six foot. Um, and embarrassingly, I was one of those liars, right? So I met my wife on an online dating website. Now, I always tell people I'm six foot minus one. Um, so I put that I was six foot on this dating website, and that got me past the bar. And now I'm happily married. Would, your, have, would your partner have not seen you had you have put 5'11"? No. No way. Absolutely not. Absolutely. You're a that victory story. You're a victory so there, story. So this. there we go. You know, so it's it it's something that, that that people do. But it just kind of proves that that people have, and especially women. So Steve and I ran this study once that was uh, a failed study. So we were go we were using plenty of fish, and we I know we're still talking about evolutionary mismatch. It doesn't feel like it, but we are. Um, and we set up some fake profiles on Plenty of Fish with the idea that we were going to manipulate status and job role and see who got attention and who didn't. And we had to call off the experiment after a week because we balanced the profiles nicely, but the female profile uh, or the couple of female profiles got like a thousand messages in two days of guys going, hey, 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 whereas the guys didn't get any messages at all. So we had no variance in the guys to be able to carry on the study with. And this was back in like, you know, probably 2009, 2010. Um, and so, you know, women are getting inundated with, with messages off, off guys, quite superficial ones playing, playing the sort of short-term game. And so naturally, that means a narrowing down, a quick narrowing down of people using very superficial criteria. Um, now, from a mismatch perspective, that's crazy, right? The, because ancestrally, your options would be like two or three people in your village and maybe guys from neighboring villages. Um, so the disparity is, is massive. What people are doing is creating sometimes arbitrary, uh, at least to their uh, forebrain, it seems to make sense, rules that can help them to narrow down the uh, degrees of choice that they have if you only date within one particular race, if you only date within one particular education. Exactly. If you date exactly. within one particular type of profession. Oh, I, I just, I need to have a doctor. I think I saw the other day that uh, female doctors, one in five female doctors also date another doctor or surgeon. Mm. Why? Yeah. Why? Uh, yeah, I yeah. mean, you've got a lot to bond over, but you, you would have presumed, so all of these things could just be a cope for the evolutionary mismatch of having a significantly broader uh, choice option, the same way as people elect to do intermittent fasting as a way to deal with the evolutionary mismatch of a prevalence of salty, sweet, and sugary foods. Yeah, so there's so, uh, exactly so there's the the narrowing down element. There's also like the archaic preferences because the preferences are functional, right? So having having a partner who has some status and has some resources that's that's not a um, uh, you know that, that that's a functional thing. Um, where the mismatch comes in is that now nowadays you don't necessarily need that. You know your welfare and your your uh, your flourishing doesn't depend 
for a lot of people, especially in Western societies with good social welfare programs, it doesn't it doesn't depend on another person as much as it used to. Um, but you can't just turn the preferences off in the same way as you can't just turn jealousy off just because everyone's using contraception. You know, it's no longer long, je- jealousy. Some could argue is no longer functional now that we have contraception. But you can't just turn it off. But the narrowing thing, I mean. I, th- I think women get a bit of a hard time sometimes for the for the for the narrowing thing, um, whereas it, it, for me it, it's kind of just like a, a cognitive heuristic that people use whenever they've they've got too much decision making to do, so or too many decisions to make. You know, this is why people gravitate towards like ratings on Amazon to cut down decision making. Um, Hell, you know, you go to a supermarket these days, you go to a supermarket where you want to buy some baked beans. You go to the baked bean aisle where there's then 25 different varieties and you pause and you're like, oh, you know, what's the prices by the size? This is why I like shopping in Lidl's and Aldi. You want the baked beans they got there or you don't. It's a more simplified situation, (laughs) you know. So we've got all of these different sort of very, very modern factors influencing um, our mating decisions which is why my advice on the on the blog is is to maybe look to the past a little bit what do you mean so when i say look to the past i mean how were people starting relationships in the past i mean when you get up the graphs showing how people meet one another i show this to 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 my students all the time you know it's the death of everything apart from you know, meeting in clubs and meeting online. Meeting online is shot up. It's now something silly, like 60, 70% of people who get married are meeting online. The stuff that's fallen off, meeting through family, meeting through close friends, meeting through social groups, meeting through work, all of these things are dropping off and online's going up. Um, now, the problem is all of those things that are dropping down involve other people that know you in some way. And so, you know, you're not meeting people with this anonymity. They can ghost. They can go away. If they go away, if they do something nasty to you, there's no social consequence if your social lives aren't entwined in some way. Um and sometimes the people who are around us, they know us best because sometimes we think we know what we want when we don't know what we want. Or sometimes we think we know what's good for us when we don't know what's good for us. So, you know, sometimes I'm there like, eh, you know, if, if you're really getting stuck, why don't you ask your friends to set you up with someone? Why don't you ask your parents what they think? Um, yeah. So that's kind of just I'm not saying it's perfect, um, but it could be something to try. It's certainly a untapped uh, pool, given that most people now are meeting their partners online, Absolutely. what that means is that any strategy which isn't meeting your partner online has a competitive advantage as a byproduct of that. Okay, next one, error management. On. What's that? So error management is this idea that for every choice you make, um, you can err in one of two ways. So you can either make a, a false positive or you can make a false neg- negative. So a false positive is, you know, I see a small black thing in the corner of my eye and I jump thinking it's a spider, but it's not a spider, right? So I've made that error. The other side, the, the, the false negative is there's a spider there. I don't notice it, right? And let's just assume it's a nasty spider that could do me harm. Not that we get many of those in the UK. So there's two different types of error for, for decisions like that, but they come with different costs. So the cost of, of seeing the sp- uh, what I think is a spider reacting a little bit and then realizing I'm okay, What's that cost me? A little bit of cortisol and, and uh, you know, uh, sympathetic nervous system activation for a couple of seconds. Not much, right? But if I don't see the spider, 
and it's a poisonous one and it's creeping up, then the consequences could be could be more dire. So error management theory is um, this, this idea that we evolve towards making the errors which are least costly for us. So the reason why you get a lot of people who are quite reactive to such things is it's better to react to, for, uh, for a little cost for that error than not react and uh, have a big associated cost. How does that relate to dating? Probably the easiest one to relate it to is the sexual overperception bias. Uh, so what you actually find in guys is that they are more likely to perceive sexual interest from uh, women when it's not there. So the cashier of the supermarket smiles, and instead of them being friendly, uh, it's, oh, she's into me. Yeah. And if you stop and think about like what the error is there. So the error is if I'm completely oblivious to that, then that's a missed sexual opportunity potentially. Yeah. Um, obviously, you've got to go and take some dates first and et cetera, et cetera. But if she's genuinely interested, you don't want to miss out on that opportunity because that's an opportunity uh, to potentially reproduce. Um, whereas if you see it when it's not there and make an advance, and this is where it gets a little bit, you know, a little bit tough. From from a selfish perspective, the costs are quite limited, right? So I get a little bit of rejection, yeah. So from an evolutionary perspective, that's not the end of the world. That's not to say, of course, there aren't knock-on effects on the other person, uh, because you know, if you har harass someone, that's a bad thing. Um, but it's this idea that you know, so that the men may have evolved in the direction of overperceiving um, uh, sexual interest just in case. How does female underperception bias tie in with error management theory? So that's, um, I mean, there's this classic distinction, isn't there, between uh, men prefer putting a greater emphasis on physical attractiveness and sexual access and women putting a greater emphasis on resources and status. And so the female equivalent is, um, uh, the female equivalent actually is uh, commitment, isn't it? It's, it's commitment skeptic. Skeptical commitment bias, I think, is is the name. So it's when you're in when you're courting someone, um, what men don't want to miss out on is the sexual access. What women don't want to miss out on is the commitment, according to the skeptical commitment bias. So women are more likely to make errors in judging commitment from men to be lower than it actually is, because if women say, "Hey, I'm with this guy." I think he's committed to me and he isn't, big issue. Whereas if I, I'm with this guy and he is committed to me, but I'm a little bit skeptical about it, okay, I could make an, an error and, and hurt his feelings a little bit. Maybe he doubles down and proves himself to me. Uh, but that error is less costly to me than the other way around. So this would be the uh, woman playing hard to get, uh, making a man wait longer before she texts back, perhaps committing to in, the man it, less quickly. Yeah, in the in the sort of courting, like, I'm using courting as if as if we're in Victorian. <laughs> I like courting. Let's bring that. Let's bring that back. So I've been thinking about Victorian mating this week for some strange reason. Um, yeah. So if we if it's in that sort of setup of a relationship stage, yeah. But you also get the um, skeptical commitment bias within relationships as well, because uh, then it's almost like um, it, it, it's even more damaging if your partner isn't committed to you and, and goes off and, and, and cheats and takes that commitment away. So parental investment. Oh, that's the next one. So parental investment is like the granddaddy of all theories, right? So for me, it's it's one of the key underpinning 
theories of my thesis. Um, it's this theory that crosses species in general. So it's not just specific to humans. So it's the idea that the sex that invests the most is the one that's in demand. So it kind of sets up these market forces. And this really started with the Bateman principle. So that's actually looking at sex cells. So if you compare sex cells, you know, guys generate millions and millions and millions of sperm continuously on the hour, every hour, whereas women are born with all of the egg cells that they'll ever have, and they're larger and they're fewer in number. So even at the sex cell level, it sets up this, this imbalance where um, guys are providing something that's quick and cheap, whereas women are, uh, are providing something that, that's precious. And I'm saying men and women there, but of course, mammals in general follow that pattern as well, which is why we tend to find sex differences in um, mammals and, uh, and other species that are in kind of predictable directions with uh, men, uh, men, males doing the competing and females doing the choosing. Now, where humans are different, of course, is that you have something called obligatory parental investment. So there's the, the stuff that you have to invest, which for most females isn't just the egg, it's the gestation, it's the weaning, you know, there's, there's heavy obligatory investment, whereas males can generally have, have sex and leave. So in, in most species, that's an option, um, unless you're a praying mantis or a spider or something. Um, the difference, however, is that in humans, obligatory parental investment isn't just it. We, our typical levels of parental investment are much higher from men. So men do, compared to other species, invest a lot in their offspring. And that's why the sex differences in humans are actually quite modest compared to other species. Like if you go to a zoo and you look at gorillas and you, or you look at elephant seals and you look at the marked massive degrees in physiology between males and females, you look at humans, it's, it's not as, as sharp. So even though there are sex differences there, because males invest so heavily in offspring, um, it actually redresses the balance a little bit, making our sex differences more moderate in size. Mm, and parental investment, presumably as well, is why women are more choosy with how many people they have sex with, who they have sex with, the amount of work that their partner has to go through before they will do that. I think, and well, that's that's a whole uh, other story. I think because I've I've heard I've heard that point be made before, but what's what's missing with that is this sexual strategy sexual strategies overlay of understanding the distinction between short-term and long-term um, because you know women will really 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 um, put the uh, apply the standards to a short-term mating partner because what are they getting out of the arrangement they're they're getting the sex and potentially falling pregnant for someone who may not hang around um, when it comes to long-term mating though men are as choosy as women, right? So it's not the case that we go on dates where uh, men get all dressed up in three-piece suits and women go in their dressing gowns and whatever they feel comfortable in, right? So, so women make an effort as well as guys, and that's because they're two investors at the table, two potential investors. Um, so it, yeah, you've got to have that nuance about it as well. Within a long-term setting, yeah, maybe there's a little bit more pickiness on women, but but guys are picky picky as well. If they're going to invest, you know, 20, 30 years, bring up children with a person, then they want to know they're getting a good deal as well, right? When you talk about sexual strategies, are those the primary ones, short-term mating, long-term mating? Yeah, pretty much. So there's been there has been some work um, – 
trying to see whether there's a difference between your long-term committed cohabiting marriage long-term strategy. So that's what what established your short-term strategy, your one-night stand, your friends with benefits, your your promiscuity. There have been some studies that have tried to look at this middle ground, but every time they do it, it just seems to fall into into short-term strategies. So it's it's like oh, you've got a guy a guy that you're with for now, but you never see it going out anywhere in the in the future. So you you can see yourself being with them for the next three months, but not the next three years. Really, it it falls back into short-term strategy. Um, the vast majority of the time. So I say yes. I say you really have these these two constructs. You're either playing the short-term game or the long-term. They interact sometimes. So a lot of people are using a short-term strategy with the idea that um, they want to transition that into a, a, a long-term thing. Uh, so there's some uh, some overlap there. But broadly speaking, I, I, I see this, those two strategies. That is the mate switching hypothesis, or at least it would be part of a female's plan toward mate switching, that it seems like a good portion of infidelity from women is done as a monkey branching strategy to move from one relationship to the next. This was moving from dual mating hypothesis to mate switching hypothesis. Yeah, I think you were talking about Alex uh, to Alex about that uh, a couple of times ago. So I, I I had a thought about that earlier on today. I can't remember what it was. Now. Yeah, I I mean traditionally, even outside of relationships, that's a tactic as well, right? So nowadays it's much more common have a short term relationship with someone first, and then if I really like them, transition that into a long term relationship. Um, the thing about mate switching as well is that guys do it too um i think the difference however is when you consider and this is one of the biggest psychological def- sex differences out there which is is the the desire for casual sex sociosexuality so sociosexual desire has a, an effect size of 0.8 something like that which is quite large by psychological terms so the difference is that when men are having um say an affair it may well be just to have sexual access and with no intention of moving past that. But women having lower sociosexuality, it's more likely that if they cheat, it, it's probably to pursue long-term interests. Uh, it's not to say that men don't do it, but uh, that's where I think that uh, particular sort of observation has come from. Alex tweeted that promiscuity seems to be a little bit heritable. Does that suggest that sociosexuality is also heritable? My, I haven't done a study on it myself, but I'm pretty sure it is. I'm pretty sure I, I, I read it. I mean, the the basic starting point for heritability is 0.5 anyway. So if you just guess 0.5 for anything, you'll be right in the vast majority of the time. But I'm pretty sure the sociosexuality is heritable. Yeah, that's interesting. So the implication there would be uh, if you are looking for a particularly committed partner, look at whether his father has got five wives continuously and... <laughs> Yeah, it's a very uncomfortable thing for some people, but you know, it always comes down to to that thing. If if, if you want to have intelligent kids, have sex with an intelligent person. Yeah, dude. You I know? mean, Robert Plowman's been on the show, and in Blueprint, he says uh, genetics isn't everything, but it's more than everything else put together. Uh, <laughs> like the most important thing that you want to do if you want to have a successful, happy, flourishing child is pick the person that you have them with very carefully. Yeah, and the other one, I mean, that's the one part of it. And then the other part is is the experiences they have outside of the, the family home. I mean, if you take um, juvenile uh, misconduct, 
for example, and look at the sort of ACE models behind that, it's like 50% heritable. And then it's like 35% influence outside of the home. In fact, I think it's like 40%. And it's a tiny slither in the home, which I always think is tra- is tragic because there's enough pressure on young mums these days of, oh, if you haven't bought the right toy, then your kid isn't going to to develop the ability to see color and, and know what crackling textures are. It's like, no, feed the kids, love the kids. They'll Get grow them good fine. friends. But get them good friends. Yeah. I mean, that's the, I think the, this is another Rob Henderson thing that one of the best predictors of future wealth is not the wealth of your parents, but it's the average wealth of the postcode that you grow up in. Yeah. Yeah. So you almost have this, uh, it's almost kind of like a weird lily pad effect. It's like surrogacy, right? Yeah. The next door neighbor's father that is a really cool musician, but your dad's lame. He's a rocket scientist, but he's sort of lame because he's the guy that tells me that I've got to go to bed at night. But John next door, John's dad, he's really cool because he plays the guitar and I want to learn to play the guitar. And dude, I, I think that there's a lot, I see it in my own life. I see the influences of the people that were around me, even into adulthood, man. Like, you know, being a club promoter for so long and and spending time uh, partying and being around people and learning uh, you know amazing insights around human nature around networking business launching advertising marketing all of this stuff but the social um values that i had the hierarchy of things that i prioritized were completely skewed to how mm. they are now and now i'm spending like I'm on the phone to David Buss for 90 minutes this morning talking about stuff. And he's like telling me about, you know, his dog, his dog needs to come over because it needs to be petted. Like I'm, I'm, I'm evidently going to have like a different value stack now. And you wonder, I always wondered about this, you know, at what point do, do our sort of values get locked in? And I'm kind of waiting. They certainly seem to be less fluid. They're less fluid than they were when I was 10 or 15, presumably, but the the influence of the people around you is always going to be there. And I, I, I do think that that's something that I wish was in more parenting books. Um, yeah. Behavioral genetics should be in yeah. more parenting books. Although if you're, t- if you're reading a parenting book, reading about behavioral genetics, it's probably a little bit late. Um, but also what is the, you know, go to every, you, you want your kid to start boxing because you don't him to get beat up to school. Okay. Go to every different boxing club and look at every kid that's in there. Yeah. Yeah. It's like when I go to a restaurant and I look at the wine list, I do that, te- that 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 usual thing. If I don't pick the cheapest, I pick the second cheapest, right? I'm a, I'm I'm the sucker that they they put the price up on the second cheapest bottle. But that's that's what you want for any trait in your life, right? So you want to be surrounded by friends who are part of a wine list, and you want to be second from the bottom. So you want a lot of your friends. If you want to be rich, you want a lot of your friends to be richer than you. If you want to, you know, have uh, make connections, you want to surround yourself with people who are connected because. You will learn from them and you will grow with them as long as you're liked being I, – I think that's one thing that should go in parent, parenting books that is it's very non-PC. We don't have enough conversations about how it's important to be liked, yep. not loved – Yep. But just liked, just tolerated, just like people, people are quite happy to be around you. Um, but I think the more you, the, the people you surround yourself with, absolutely so, so important. But it's not just a childhood thing. It, yeah. Through your whole life. That's one of Peterson's rules is uh, don't allow your children to do anything that makes you hate them. Yeah. Uh, and you That's... want the child to walk into the room and for the parents in there to give them a big hug and pick them up and ask them how everything's been going in school. You don't want, because it, the kids will pick up on it if they're like, oh yeah. God, Andrew's coming around again. I hope he doesn't bring that Power Ranger and <laughs> oh, you know, no, draw on the walls. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> me and you both. I was that guy. I was a very unlikable <laughs> child. So, with, with... yeah, no, no. And when I when I read that in uh, in Jordan's book, that that was one of the the slices of stuff that Jordan says that makes perfect sense to me. Before then, talking about chaos, and then I switch off a little bit. Um, but that that's like everyone, right? Everyone's a no one's black and white. Everyone's a, a weird mixture of grey. Strategic pluralism. Yes, strategic pluralism. That's the last of the five, I think. So this is um, so. If sexual strategies is about having long-term and short-term strategies, distinct, we call sets of psychological mechanisms. Strategic pluralism for me is how you navigate switching between those strategies. You know, some people are born wanting a husband or a wife and they'll do that they'll have uh, a high school sweetheart who becomes the only person i'll ever sleep with and they'll have a million kids with them and and die in a rocking chair age 80 um, and good for them so they're like hardcore long term and then you have some people who will never settle down because they can't think of anything worse and they just want to have fun and have as much sex as possible i know plenty of those people as well but not everyone has that sort of pure strategy lens and this isn't something by the way that's just unique to humans so a lot of animals uh from squirrels to bears to all sorts of weird and wonderful things like i think 50 percent of my my phd thesis was animal studies on on strategies um most people will flick most people will have a mixed strategy i will apply short term and i'll apply long term so strategic pluralism is about well when do you switch and why uh so for example if you um, are in a situation or an environment which is mildly dangerous, then you're probably going to move towards uh, long-term mating because it's a safer environment to bring up a child having the support of another person. If you're in a really, really safe environment, one with a lot of social support, maybe good social welfare, then actually having that second partner uh, or sorry, having that other partner to bring up a child with doesn't add benefits. And so then short-term relationships are on the cards. What's super interesting about that, by the way, though, is that's like a U-shaped curve. So you actually get some situations which are so dangerous that it's like all better off. There's no point in having parental care because it's not going to make a difference. Um, so actually some of the most sort of um, terrible situations you can find people in uh, people just sort of go into end of the world promiscuous mating mode. Wow, that's yeah. so interesting. Yeah, I um, was it? I think it was Armageddon where there's that famous scene where he, where the the girl says, "I don't want to die a virgin," and they like cut to the dude that she's saying it to his face, and he's like, "Yes." <laughs> <laughs> like, well, I mean, yeah. everyone's gonna die unless Bruce Willis can fix it, but. <laughs> Yeah, it's um. I mean, that stuff. That, I find that stuff almost, almost endlessly um, fascinating to think about how different mating strategies can be can adjust to the local ecology. I remember the first time that I learned about the sex ratio hypothesis, and mm. it made me think about humans like plants. You know, you you put a, yeah. a plant in the corner of the room, and there's a bit of light in the top corner, and the plant responds to the local environment. Its ecology determines the way that it's going to behave. And, you know, uh, sex ratio is just literally endlessly interesting. Uh, and I imagine that strategic pluralism and sex ratio kind of aren't, aren't exactly a million miles apart from each other. Yeah, that, so that would be an example of a cue. 
and we know that sex ratio cues, um, I think Arnaki did some some work on this, sex ratio cues can um, temporarily sort of change short-term mating inclination. What's super interesting about it actually is that when you get down to smaller species like arthropods and stuff uh, that are doing different mating strategies, because they have short generations, you can actually run the maths on what happens based on the strategies they're following. And you actually find that the different sexual strategies kind of balance out in terms of fitness in the long run. So the the ones that are employing sort of more short-term strategies versus long-term strategies, you know, 10, 20 generations down the line, they're both e- representing an equal proportion of the gene pool. Um, so they kind of have a way of balancing out, which is why we keep both of them in uh, the So they the can genome. both be successful. It's not like yeah. there's a single optimizing function here. No. How no. I mean, some, some of it is context-dependent, of course. but Yeah, 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 yeah. Didn't you recently do a study that mediated short-term mating desire amongst men based on their arousal? Yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, so I did that with um, Wiseman recently. Oh, Wiseman. Um, that was really, really cool because it was one of those things where the effect was so reliable that, and you just couldn't explain it away with trait variables. So it was like, yes, if you get guys horny, they then say, oh, I, I have a greater interest in short-term mating. And and that's one of those studies where like people reply to it and say, oh, yeah, of course, well, you've just done a study showing that water's wet. And I'm like, well, hang on a second. Okay, so yeah, it makes sense to you. But if you had someone who was very inclined towards long-term mating, so say we had our Mr. High, high School Sweetheart thing, wouldn't you expect him, if he was horny, to just think of his wife? and want sex and pursue sex with his wife. You know, if we're suspending what we know uh, 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 from sort of folk psychology for a second, like that's a plausible, that's a pl- plausible hypothesis, but that's not what happens. Even he, so if you, even when you control for sociosexuality, when you control for dark triad, sexual arousal leads to increase in short-term mating interest. And I think that's really, really cool. And it's cool for lots of different reasons. You can go talk about, you know, how that factors into harassment and all sorts. Um, but just from a, um, just from a having control of your own mating destiny perspective, like you're going to make different mating decisions based on whether you're horny or not. Mm-hmm. That's something you should know. <laughs> yes. If you- what was what was I can't remember what it's something that rhymes. It's like ejaculate before you evaluate or something like that. Uh, that's just like a, a little piece of advice to guys before they perhaps consider going in, you know, they're in a long-term relationship with a committed partner. And one evening, maybe they've bumped into some girl and he goes home and she finds him on Instagram and then messages him and stuff. And it's like, oh, should I, should I go around? You go, well, you might just be horny. You might, you might be able to fix this a lot more easily than mm-hmm. something that's a bit more of a permanent decision. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the insight of the reverse, what, what, what does it suggest to you then? that horniness increases short-term mating what does that say uh in terms of what in like why terms would that of be the case or like why just... would the, why why would that be the case um actually i haven't really stepped back and thought about it from an adaption perspective i've been thinking more about 
See, the thing is, I've got this whole other arm of my research about sexual harassment that I'm doing at the moment, you see. And sociosexuality turns out to be like a big, big predictor of sexual harassment behavior. So I've kind of approached this from from that perspective of if it's activating short-term mating, what implications might it have uh, have for that? But I think it's a case of... It, oh right, okay, yeah. Well, it comes it comes down to mismatch. You can see the cogs actually turning in my head. Bro, my science eyes. it, Andrew. Bro, we're outside yeah, of the like, academia why, why now. Not? Yeah. Why not? I should have brought a whiskey with me. Um, the thing is, because it, it it's kind of like the voyeurism thing that I've done as well, right? Because I've done some work on voyeurism. Because again, with sociosexuality, that tends to predict voyeurism, voyeuristic tendencies. Tends to be higher in men. Why? Well, generally speaking, if you're seeing something that's getting you sexually aroused that's historically um, and ancestrally a pretty good indicator that some sex is to be had you know so there is no equivalent in the stone age apart from perhaps a cave painting on a wall of a pornographic video i mean i was told you know i said this to the students the other day it's like it it's if you think about how ludicrous it is that there's a 2D image in front of you that you can put your hand on, that you can look around the side of a monitor, and it's clearly not real. But it's enough to trick our ancestral mating systems into thinking that there, you know, it's, it's a giant sex cue. Sex is about to happen enough to arouse us. You know, So, of course, your psychology is going to be line, uh, lined up with that. Sex is available. I am now aroused. I want the sex. I don't want to entertain a long-term relationship with an extended courting process before I have it. <laughs> what? How? How are you tying this into uh, sexual harassment? Do you think uh, should we have a uh, should we extend a particular amount of sympathy to uh, men who have got highly heritable, they didn't choose it, sociosexuality, and these are. Uh, people mm. whose overperception bias is just running rampant. So there's a couple of different flavors of sexual harassment, let's call it, right? So there are some guys out there who are just flat out predators. I've met them, I've seen them in nightclubs, I've kicked them out of nightclubs because they go and they find the drunk woman and they're stone cold sober and they hunt and they walk around and they pretend to dance with their friend and they try to isolate. Like there are some proper predators out there. And that is one flavor of harassment and, and the really, really serious, serious stuff. You then also have harassment that, in my view, is born from misunderstanding. Yeah, so not guys going out of their way to cause harm and to cause pain. And one of the fundamental uh, misunderstandings is that people apply what they want to the mind of the other person. So humans are really, really good at theory of mind. It's like one of the human superpowers that we really take for granted. Being able to, to guess and put what other people think, put our mind in theirs, human superpower. But it has its limitations. And one of its limitations, and one of the reasons that sociosexuality is one of the biggest predictors of harassment, is because if someone is playing the short-term mating game, they make an assumption that the other person is as well. So if you're 
playing a short and this isn't just men by the way this is this is women too so women who have high sociosexuality are going to assume if they're heterosexual that men too have high sociosexuality of course the statistics will show that they'll, they'll be more right in that guess than the other way around um and so if you're playing short-term strategy short-term relationships are about sex that is the the, the main part of it it's not like a long-term relationship you strip away the courting process you strip away the commitment the getting to know a person it's about having sex and it's about having sex as quickly as possible and so those with high sociosexuality they're more likely to initiate physical contact they're more likely to lead the conversation down a sexual route more quickly um and make no bones about it some people are doing that because they know it'll make someone uncomfortable but they're just playing the numbers game but others are doing it because they genuinely just think the other person wants that and are causing clum clumsily causing harm distress and upset are you familiar with this uh new performative um like resistance to sex study that's just come out mm -mm. so this was i mean william sent this to me and this is the sort of thing where i, I talk about everything on my newsletter right anything yeah. i'm like any study that's just come out i'm ready to go this is one that as of yet is a little bit too spicy so i'll read you the abstract okay okay we investigated whether women ever engage in token resistance to sex saying no but meaning yes and if they do what their reasons are for doing so a questionnaire administered to 610 undergraduate women asked whether they had ever engaged in token resistance and if so asked them to rate the importance of 26 possible reasons we found that 39.3 percent of the women had engaged in token resistance on at least once their reasons fell into three categories practical inhibition related and manipulative reasons women's gender roles attitudes erotophobia erotophilia and other attitudes and beliefs varied as a function of their experience with token resistance, uh, their sexual experience. We argue that given today's sexual double standard, token resistance may be a rational behavior. It could, however, have negative consequences, including discouraging honest communication, perpetuating restrictive gender stereotypes, and if men learn to disregard women's refusals, increasing the incidence of rape. Okay, so now I know why uh, our mutual Irish friend kept that from me because he was probably trying to not hurt my feelings um, because my lab has done something similar and we haven't written it up yet. And actually, <laughs> we found a similar thing with, four, with that 40% number. Um, only we didn't go for the token sexual resistance route. We just played, went for the playing hard to get route. So to, to what extent have people played hard to get? To what extent did they think other people play hard to get? Because that's part of it as well. Um, it does have a different flavor to it than, than sexual resistance. But the one thing um, that we've picked up on is, because we've also done some qualitative focus groups on it, it's something that doesn't happen at the start of a relationship. So it doesn't happen at that time zero. You're meeting someone for the first time, asking them out on a date. It happens... At, a little while in in that courting process when you've been on a couple of dates and you're sort of like maybe trying to communicate that your make value is higher than it is or you're, you're starting to play games with someone that you're genuinely interested in at that stage you actually get a large proportion of, of so so the the proportion of women saying that they've ever done that as a tactic and guys because there's not really a sex difference there is like 70 80 percent and actually um, if you ask women, uh, you know, if they met someone that they, you know, for the first time that they really liked, 
what are the chances that they would use playing hard to get as a bit of a tactic? You know, you get like 40% or something like that. But what's really, really interesting is that women overestimate, uh, sorry, women overestimate how often other women play that tactic. Um, and men actually underestimate how often women play that tactic when I thought it was going to be the other way around. Me too, yeah. Um, but I guess the issue with it is because I think it is a natural part of flirting, playing playing hard to get, feigning disinterest from both camps, from both males and females. But I think that if you're someone who is looking for a short-term relationship, so you're going to be more sex-focused anyway, and you think that you've, you've noticed that women play hard to get sometimes, so obviously I'm talking about men here for a second, and you think that they're inclined to do it within the first 30 seconds of meeting them, that's the recipe for disaster. Because if because they haven't actually objected within the first 30 seconds, your presumption is that any... Maybe they are. It's performative as opposed to genuine reticence. Yeah. And so my lab's doing quite a bit at the moment with um, this sort of predictors of luck pushing to what extent, you know, you've asked someone once, they've already said no. Um, you know... The next day you see them again, if you were to ask them a second time, what do you think your chances are of that being successful? So we're doing some some work on, on that at the moment. So that luck pushing, that maybe I'll try again element. Because when you do the, the male focus groups, there really is that, that, that thing of, well, if it doesn't harm, you may as well try again because you never know. So there's obviously some stuff to do there with educating around harm as well. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, all of this is mediated by being... Charming is the closest approximate word that I can find for it. Mm. And, and delivering whatever it is that you do, whether it's the cashier that smiles at you as she packs your bags or whether it's the workmate that said no yesterday or whatever. I do think that this is the subject of John Berger's book, uh, Make the First Move, which is really, really great and, and touches on sex ratios from a, a very sort of pro-female perspective, where he says that you know for almost all of human history, women were told that the way to attract a guy was to treat him like you don't like him. Why men love bitches and, you know, feign disinterest and all this sort of stuff. But in a post-Me Too world, men are hypersensitized to being accused of being a creep or being overbearing. They absolutely do not want to be any of the, the, the issues. I think it's um, some huge majority of men would never consider approaching a woman in a bar, an acceptable thing to do for fear of coming across as creepy, uh, even though 86% of women still want a man to make the first move. And yet there's still a high proportion of women who have been made to feel creepy by guys when they've approached them. So you have all of these kind of intersecting uh, challenges that you need to weave your way through. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And if you look at some of the work that Leif Kinnear's done or uh, Apostolo's done, you know, one of the things that, that, people who are perpetually single report is that they're useless at flirting. Yeah. So they, if you take a flirting index and ask people, you know, how to rate themselves on it, they tend to do really, really because flirting is a skill and it's, it, it's a skill that you have to learn. You have to learn how to um, read body language, how to read 
behind what people are saying, to be sensitive to the fact that actually we're not flirting and I need to go away. Um, but unfortunately, it is a skill. It's something that you're not born with and it's something that you certainly don't want your parents to teach you. Um, and you have to kind of develop that. So I think we're now reaching the point where it, it's almost not okay to learn that skill. And that's a bit problematic, I think. I wonder whether part of the challenges that young guys under the age of 30 are struggling with that's causing sexlessness is downstream from straight up poor social skills to the point Absolutely. where their ability to flirt has just been tuned down that it's not to do with yep yeah, the the increasing female achievement and the hypergamy and the men not being able to be up and across and the da, 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 da. but also maybe this generation of men are just worse flirters than any other generation before. I, I absolutely think that. And I think, you know, go back 30, 40, 50 years, that sort of stuff you'd be taught by your older brother or by other positive male role models that you have. You know, there's this whole issue around people like Andrew Tate and stuff at the moment where it's like, well, we've got this vacuum and these people are stepping into the vacuum and men are seeking them out. And you've got to think, well, well, what is causing that vacuum? What used to fill that that isn't anymore? And for me, it's strong male role models that are showing not toxic masculinity, but like good masculinity. Benevolent, using, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's your scoutmasters. You know, I'm I'm not hugely religious, but it's your church leaders, it's your religious leaders. You know, it's organizations like the Freemasons. It, it's sports it's teams, fathers, sports older brothers, teams, uncles, coaches. You know, good good men who are able to to show you what being a good man means. And I think now we're just sort of just. I mean, I do it myself. You're just scrolling on your phone of an evening, doing nothing. That's not learning positive how to contribute to society in a positive way. And young men, I, so I used to live, right? I used to live in the middle of a park, right? I used to rent a property in the middle of a park. So I used to see all of like the eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 year old kids uh, and how they used to sort of run around in the park during the summertime. That sounds so creepy. I'm not like that, but anyway, the point is half, half of the time they were destroying things and not the young girls, the young men are destroying things. They're throwing bottles. Someone planted a tree. They ripped the tree out of the ground. And it's like, when you see these guys, it's, it's almost like they have this yearning to control their environment with their hands in some way to actually do something, to make some sort of mark. And it's like, if you don't, give an opportunity to construct in some way they'll just destruct yes and i think that that's part of the problem as well that you, you we, we need stronger male role models who are helping young men giving giving them some some way of building their status um because that's a whole other argument as well of how do you build status because you have this really nice dichotomy in a, a lot of traditional societies between prestige and dominance and i think these days a lot of young men say, see oh it, it's dominance 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 that's yes. how you build status yeah. when actually prestige is is more of a sort of healthy way of building um 
building it's more status. robust as well. It's more likable. It's definitely going to be able to scale over time because, you know, your dominance, if you continue to play that game, eventually is going to get you punched in the face or thrown in jail or something bad is going to happen. Prestige may end up with you being people being jealous of you, but that's significantly better than the outcomes that you get from dominance. Yeah, yeah. I am... Um, I'm playing around with this idea at the moment, and unfortunately, it it, it seems to not really be uh, actually holding much weight, but we'll see as I continue to do more research. The male sedation hypothesis, which is why have we not seen young male syndrome given the incredibly high levels of sexlessness amongst young men? Very high mm -hmm. levels of sexlessness, but not uh, a um, in-kind increase in the destructive antisocial behavior that you would see amongst that particular cohort of guys. Yeah. And my theory originally was that uh, porn and video games are giving a titrated dose of reproductive cues and of status-seeking, camaraderie, goal-oriented behavior. But mm -hmm. I'm yet to see any evidence that suggests that porn use turns down men's desire for real-world sex. David Lay uh, couldn't find yeah. that. Um, he's he, he doesn't see any evidence for it. Uh, David Buss sent me an article earlier on this morning that also doesn't seem to show that sexual desire is mediated by porn. What What's your view on this? Every time I put porn in, it doesn't predict anything. Um, you know, and, it was such and a nice it, it's the male it, it sedation hypothesis. It's such it, it a nice name, nice. Andrew. It would be, it, yeah. It, it, it's 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 a very nice, and I'm sure that there's some other way that we can uh, find that, that men are being -hack sedated. It. Yes, but um, no, every time we put porn use in in like harassment stuff and and that it doesn't it doesn't come up. I, I will tell you something interesting though. I'll tell you something interesting from the polygyny preprint that we've got out now about that status that uh, status thing, the prestige and dominance. So sociosexuality is positively associated with dominance, okay. but negatively associated with prestige. So there seems to be something there about prestigious men being more inclined for a long-term relationship and dominance being more inclined for short-term relationship. That seems to make sense, but what's interesting is that it's going in the opposite direction. Mm. I can understand how dominant men would be higher in sociosexuality, but if the, if the arrow is moving in the other direction, that's interesting. Mm. Uh, what was that uh, attitudes of people in the West to multi-partner relationships yeah what is this? so that so that's a preprint that i've got out now oh, it's a funny story i'll be presenting that at hbest by the way because hey I'm on this. you and me both let's there go there we go so i'm on this uh consensual non-monogamy uh panel which is is really interesting because it's because it, i didn't set out for this study to be a consensual non-monogamy study and then it's it's under review with archives at the moment and it came back with three reviews all saying we we love the methods we love the results but we want you to completely rewrite the introduction from a consensual non-monogamy lens so i was like right interesting let's crack on with that so uh, i pulled in justin mcgilski and he's um gonna help me with that um anyway so this study was we live in, in, in the UK, uh, and in the UK, you're not allowed to do polyg uh, polygamy of any kind. So you're not allowed uh, to marry – a man can't marry several wives. A woman can't marry several men. It's called bigamy. It's still punishable by seven years in, in prison, by the way. Um, so it's something that's socially sanctioned. 
And whereas you can you can have relationships like that, they're generally frowned upon, right? Which is really really interesting because you know the, if you look at fossil evidence and you look at our biology, it all points towards at least effective polygyny in in humans in some way. So men having um, a smaller number of men having uh, access to, to to more women rather than everything being a, a monogamous pairing. And also, if you look at all hunter gatherer societies. Um, I think something like 86% of hunter-gatherer societies permit polygyny. Not everyone tends to be the chief and, you know, people who are uh, very high status in those societies. Um, but they're permitted in most cultures that uh, are current or uh, that we've previously known about that have fallen apart. So if there's an argument to be made that maybe polygyny is something that's hung around as part of the human mating experience for some time. So we've run a study just basically to, to see, well, do you actually find a desire for polygyny in a population, i.e. the UK, where it's actually, you know, there's sanctions against it? Um, because if you can still find interest in that mating arrangement in a society where, you know, people aren't talking about it, you're not allowed to do it. Well, maybe that's telling you that we've, we've got an, an, a part of our uh, evolved mating psychology is uh, is still there kind of in the in the background so that's what we did we basically asked uh, a, a real well two studies actually a large sample of men and women about their polygynous interest and polyandry which is the multiple men to women and what happened interesting stuff really interesting stuff so um I've got the I've got the exact figures here because I haven't committed them to memory yet. So we we did quite a few things in terms of like correlational profiles and comparing um, interest for polygynous relationships against, for example, just having an affair, affair partners and stuff. But basically, what you find is a third of guys say that they would be open to a polygynous relationship. So a third of guys say yes, I would like to have two long-term partners at the same time who know about each other, accept each other, they don't get to have sex with anyone else, just me. And a third of them are like, yes, I would be open to that. Women being part of that relationship, not so much, about one in 20 were saying, yes, I would be a, like a co-girlfriend or a co-wife. Um, and then a quite a, a bit of a proportion that's unsure. So about 20% 20, 20 of guys are unsure, 14% of women are unsure, so sometimes it's easier just to look at the no. So 50% of guys are like, definitely no. 80% of women are like, definitely no. Are you surprised at 50% of men saying definitely no, given male desire for sexual variety? Um, I'm not surprised because of when you start looking into polygyny, just how difficult that is to juggle as a, a relationship um but also remember this is in a background where people are, are brought up to be told that this is wrong so it's actually more the the other way around i'm surprised that you've got 50 percent of men who are saying either yes or or un, uncertain um but what's really interesting is that you get that big sex difference in polygyny so women are like no 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 um guys are like yeah okay i'd be open for it but when you look at polyandry the sex is respond pretty much the same which is that about 10 percent of people say yes um about 10 to 20 percent of people say that are unsure but most people are, are saying no and there's not a big sex difference between men and women there so the the um there's a much more 
drive on the, the guy side towards uh, polygyny than women towards polyandry. But it's about the same number of men that would accept being part of a female's harem as women who would want a harem of men, around about 10% on board. That's a so much better way of putting it. I should have had you on the paper summarizing stuff for me. Uh, I, as as you may be aware, <laughs> I'm actually giving a short 15-minute presentation at HPES this year. So Really? You, I should go to that. Yeah, yeah. I, I can get you an invite. That. You speak to Excellent. me. I'll probably be able Brilliant. to sort you out. Um, so interesting stuff there around stated and revealed preferences um, oh absolutely absolutely because i actually i i put that in the paper right so there's a, a massive difference between like would would guys actually like once you've got the decision there's there's that whole whole hot and cold reasoning element to it as well right um sorry i interrupted no just that was it it was just the stated and revealed preferences thing i mean you know guys i imagine that uh, actually, do I? I was thinking about the fact that if a man was offered the the multiple women in front of him, that it would it would sound great. But I think that that really works best for short term mating. I think when you actually are faced with the stark thermodynamics of trying to have a household with two women who, as much as they say that they get on great and maybe in the bedroom they're fantastic. I mean, we've had a lot of history of intrasexual competition between women yeah. poisoning each other's kids, poisoning each other, trying to push them down cliffs, you know, all manner of fuckery that's gone on. And it wouldn't surprise me if men may be mediated by status. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And when we... um when you look at the data in more traditional societies, you basically find that women are drawn towards polygyny only when the benefits they can get out of the polygynous marriage exceed what they could get out of a monogamous marriage. So if I've got a, a husband who can only invest five um, all in me, or there's a husband here who can invest 20 in me and another person, well, then I'm getting 10 of the 20, which is more than the five. Mm. So there's a, there's a balance there of would I, be, would I be better off on my own or part of, part of this thing in, in terms of having my utilitarian intimate. calculation in that regard. Yeah, it is. And it's also, uh, I mean, a lot of these societies tend to have a lot of control over women as well. So it's, it's like the, the way that women actually... Uh, you know, if, if they have less, free, the way that they do things and gain access to things is a lot of the time through men, um, which is a shame. Of I learned, I can't remember what I was listening to yesterday, but I learned about how the culture of Chinese feet tying. Oh man, I hate that stuff. Have you seen the pictures? No, thankfully oh, not. Not good. It's all. It's well. Uh, Okay. Cultural rel cultural relativism cultural relativism should we judge? Yeah, I'll judge. You see, they look like pigs trotters. It's awful. The the, the the toes get curled round. It's isn't oh. there a argument that the reason that that came about was due to Asian warlords that had huge harems of women and didn't want the women to be able to run away? I have absolutely no idea. I'll find I the thought... I'll find the segment and I'll send it to you. Uh, but basically the argument, and the same was for female genital mutilation, that if women don't enjoy sex and or can't run away, that there is less chance of a, a very inherently unstable harem of like yeah. an unsustainable number of women uh, 
crashing and burning around you because why would they sleep with the the hot guards king's guard that works outside the door or wh- why would they run away from this terrible situation if they either can't run or don't enjoy sex yeah it's it's i mean i the the, the chinese foot binding thing my understanding was that that was to do with like uh, small feet being more feminine and petite the female genital mutilation are especially when you get like the there's a couple of stages to it and when you get to like the, the worst one there's there's absolutely nowhere nothing that you can no way you can interpret that apart from male control it's it's fucking disgusting um and what's really bad about that is a lot of the time there's this sort of cultural attachment to it where it's uh, other women pushing for it as well so it almost like started as a male thing and mm. then it's like then what do you think is going on there intrasexual competition again no because it tends it, it can sometimes be like mothers and stuff like that as well straight up um, cultural artifact that straight up like through. oh this is you know this is part of being a woman and and uh it's dude it, well, it, i mean i'm out, I'm out in austin awful. texas at the moment and the number of times that me and william will be sat around a dinner table talking to a bunch of our lad mates and the topic of foreskins will come up because that's obviously our favorite conversation to have when we're sat of course dinner. yes yes uh, especially that's what men talk about if it's beef jerky we immediately want to talk about about foreskins and uh brilliant that's exactly the same. When you hear secular, non-Jewish, you know, gr- grew up in a, a, a totally secular household guys who will say, yeah, my dad's circumcised, I'm circumcised, I'll be circumcising my son. Like, okay, why? That's interesting. Why? What's your reason? Yeah. Well, it's just, you know, everyone's, that's how everyone's got it. I'm like, well. It's um, it's another level though, Chris, the, the, the female gentle, gentle oh, yeah. mutilation. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's really something else. It's, to me, it's the equivalent of saying, am I going to have some nails pulled out or am I going to have my hand chopped off with the nails being pulled out being the circumcision? It's really, yeah. Not good. It's 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 not good. It's it's the type of thing which really makes my blood boil, if I'm honest, when I've uh, read about it and stuff. Oh, well, so we'll move on. Uh, how many, hooray. Okay. How yes. many previous sexual partners is too many? 212. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Oh, sorry, uh, you. I thought you were asking me about my own personal preference. Um, right. So I did some work with Steve on this, and you're going to really enjoy this because we've got a follow-up study that we're, I'm just writing up at the moment. So we did this study in 2018, I think 2017, 2018. It actually. So this is one of my claim to fame. This got written up in Playboy. So so that's like you know. Uh, oh, we've made it. Um, so we basically said, you know, for a long-term partner, here's a person. They're generally attractive. How willing would you be to go on a date with them or entertain them as a long-term partner based on what people now call body count? But when we did the research was just how many sexual partners they've had. And you, I still remember walking into Steve's office and him having on the screen where he'd plotted up the data. He's got the, the nicest curve ever. And he was like, yeah, I'm writing this up. It was a lovely, lovely curve. And it basically peaks at around about four being like the optimal uh, three to four What's really, really cool is it's not just a linear pattern. So it's not like three to four and then it just goes downhill. You get this little curve. So people are a bit wary about a virgin as well. Uh, It's still high. So being a virgin is, I think, equivalent to something like having 12 partners, something like that. Um, Yeah, being – oh, no, it's less than that. It's seven to eight partners is the equivalent of kind of being a virgin. Is this male to female, uh, female to male? Is there a, gen- a sex difference here? There's, it depends on, uh, again, sexual strategy. 
So if you're just looking at a long-term relationship, the lines are so close together you could squint and they look the same. Where you get the difference is for a short-term partner and then men's standards drop um, compared to women. But for a, long, for a long-term partner, no, the, the nice sort of curve shape is about the same. How different is a woman's short-term and long-term curve? Uh, it's a little bit flatter. Um, so if they're looking for a, a short-term relationship, whether someone has two partners or like 12 partners, it's pretty similar. Right. It's pretty similar. So it flattens out a little bit. The curve is sort of less steep, uh, but it's still much higher than guys. Mm. What do you think that it says that having a, a virgin or somebody with one partner is less desirable than somebody with three or four. Is this stated in revealed preferences again, or is there something else going on? I think that this is, so you've got to think it's all, it's a U-shaped curve at the end of the day. And there's almost like you, U-shape, uh, U-shaped risks associated with it. So risks on either end. So the risk to having someone with zero sexual partners is that there might be a reason for it. There might be a reason that they're a virgin. So it could be that they're just not a good deal. It could be that they have low mate value. So it could be that you're actually completely overestimating how good a catch this person is. Uh, It's a kind of of pre-selection. Yeah, once you enter into a relationship and you start investing, you don't want to be investing in someone who is not the best deal for you. On the other end, when you have people who have too many sexual partners, then you have things like sexually transmitted disease. If you want a long-term relationship, the chances of them maybe cheating on you or leaving is is, prob- is probably quite a bit higher. Um, and so there's risks all round, but the higher number, I believe, associated with different risks than the lower numbers. But interesting, I, I'm doing a follow-up study. So this one was in uh, the Journal of Sex Research, and it was just on a UK sample. Um, so I thought, right, how can we just like inject some steroids into this thing? So I've redone it, but we've done it with 10 countries. So UK, Poland, Norway, Japan, Brazil, all over the place. Yeah. Um, and not only are we now looking at numbers, but we're looking at when the numbers were. Because what I realized is that if you're asking people about 12 partners, and they, may, they they can make a judgment, but then if you were to say it's 12 partners and 11 of those have been in the last three months, that's very different to 11 of them were around about when that person was 18, 19, and 20, and then recently they've only had one or two. Do you see what I mean? Numbers are the same, but if you were going to pick someone for a long-term relationship <laughs> – that's going to commit to you and you might get married to and have kids to, which one are you going for? There's someone who clearly was a bit sexually desirable in their youth and has calmed down a bit or someone who's actually pretty active now. They're on a tear at the moment. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, so we've got that. I'm just plotting up the data at the moment. Um, Isn't it interesting that some of the common men's advice on the internet, especially around pre-selection, uh, you know, there's a big push at the moment for the polygyny thing that most girls will happily take a high value man if, you know, he's sufficiently high value and she'll happily share him and so on and so forth. That doesn't seem to be borne out in this data, given the fact that men's preference for partners, especially over the long term and women's doesn't diverge all that much. 
It no. doesn't seem like women see the, the, a high body risk... count in a man as being a, a some sort of pre-selection uh, attractor. And there's there's some work I'm doing. I keep saying this. I've got more studies than I have time to write them up. And I'm doing some work with um, Leif Kinnair at the moment about the sexual double standards. Because you, you almost have sexual double standards at a global level and a personal level. So the global level is like, or the societal level is, what do you think society says? Um, and that's when you sort of get narratives like, well... Um, Girls don't care about a guy's body count, but guys care about a girl's body count at the sort of societal level. But whenever you measure it at the personal level, so what an individual actually thinks, very little evidence for the sexual double standard. Mm -hmm. So it's one of these things where we actually think it's a thing, but when you actually talk to someone, it turns out not really to be a thing. What do you think that says about our own sexuality and the way that we perceive other people's? I think that it's it says that sometimes our uh mating theory of mine can be quite faulty um i think that there's culture wars all over the shop including between men and women these days and i think it ends up in a place where the sexes become quite caricatured especially based on maybe the most extreme examples um so again one of the most common one is that people will apply short-term mating psychology of men to men. So they will assume that the men who are only after short-term relationships and what they want, they will say all men are like that, even those who are looking for long-term relationships. Um, and I, I actually think a lot of suffering in, in the dating world comes from conflating short-term and long-term mating desires so either you're after something long term um but you're picking someone who's after something short term that causes a lot of um confusion or thinking that you want something long term when you actually want something short term uh which i think is also quite interesting the number of people i've met who say that they want to get married and have kids and settle down but then you ask them what their mate preferences are and they just reel you off all of the short-term mating preferences and none of the long-term mating preferences. It's like, well, actually, it sounds like you just want a short-term partner because you don't care about kindness. You don't care about whether they want kids. You don't care about um, uh, whether they can, they're can they good communicators or whether they can em empathize well. You just care about do they look good? Are they good in bed? <laughs> Are they going to give me resources now? Um so, yeah, a lot of people are playing the short-term game when they think they're playing the long-term game. I wonder whether that would be I wonder whether that would have a sexed difference. I would imagine that given women not wanting to seem easy, not wanting to come across like they are not valuing their body in the same sort of way that you may find that women will use I am after a long-term mate as perhaps even their own self-deception in order to perhaps pursue short-term mating goals? Um, I don't know. <laughs> it's just, it's, a, it's an interesting. So to, to round out that um, optimal number of partners, was it almost yeah. exactly the same for men and women? Yeah. It was about four? Yeah. Yeah, I've got it here in front of me now, about four. I mean, this was three to four. This was a few years ago, mine. So we're going to see... Um, the, we're going to see the difference in the new study. Reckon I mean, one of the things I can, up? 
a little bit? Well, one of the things that we have done is we've looked at like 4 versus 12 versus 36 um, and the distribution patterns because we show people actual physical distribution patterns. So here's one that shows that it was recent. Um, distribute that 4 obviously is still an optimal. There's no effective, effective distribution for 4. So it doesn't matter when people had partners. 4 is like a nice solid number. Um, it's when you have the larger numbers, that's when it matters more of when when did that happen is that something in your past or not um and once you actually send a load of those into the past the difference between say 4 12 and 36 start to converge a little bit so it gets to the point where the differences become minimal so that's quite interesting it adds that extra dimension you conducted an experiment where you asked chat gpt about <laughs> about mate preferences before we get into that what mate preferences do people typically look for in a partner? So I I love the right, okay. So I'll give you the, 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 the real answer. Everything, right? So if you give people a Likert scale one to nine and say, What's your ideal for humor, intelligence, physical attractiveness, good financial prospects, creativity? They go nine eight eight nine nine eight nine. They just do the whole thing, which is why a lot of the research we do, we have to ask about minimum mate preferences, in which case they go uh, seven, 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 seven. But actually the best research just then introduce an element of forced choice in some way, like a ranking task. Like, okay, so everything's high, what's the highest? And when you do ranking tasks, the things that appear at the top are like dependable character, being kind and understanding. Even though a lot of evolutionary research is focused on the sort of physical attractiveness, good financial prospects thing, that actually ends up a little bit further down in the list most of the time. But so a lot of the the, the traits near the top are actually things which are um, very useful for long-term relationships. So pleasing disposition is my favourite one. Um, if you does, if if there wasn't a rich history of this study, I don't think anyone would use the words pleasing disposition. But this ranking task of like eighteen traits or whatever, they started doing this in um, just after the Second World War, like nineteen forty nine. And then every couple of decades, they repeat that study, that ranking task, to find that things don't change a huge hell of a lot, which is super interesting, by the way. So pleasing disposition, which is just having someone who's nice to be around. Um, I think that's something that's completely off people's radar when they're in the early stages of mating. But it's like in 10 years' time, when you're spending every day with this person, it's like having someone who's pretty easygoing and nice to be around is like the most important thing in the whole world. It really, really is. So these are the types of things that are super, super important. Um, so if you look at something like uh, good looks – so good looks actually in a, a, a list of 18 ends up getting about like 10. So it's quite far down down the list. But what I did with the chat G, uh, GPT thing is I was like, right, okay, well, you've got this, this weird and wonderful AI. By the way, I'm super annoyed by this because I threw this one up on Psychology Today and it's like my worst read blog post of all time. It's only got like low four figures, which is really, really I like frustrating because I, I thought it was super cool. But basically... I said, right, here's all of the data that we've known since 1949 about how people rank their mate preferences. It's barely changed. Let's see if ChatGPT can predict what the research says. 
even though it probably even has access to some of it. I thought, let's try it. So the first thing it did is it spat out a load. Well, no, the first thing it did was like, oh, I'm not going to tell you, right? It's like, oh, you know, mate preferences are so idiosyncratic and, you know, sounding like some sort of hippie or whatever. Then you sort of like say, oh, okay, we'll pretend you're Chad or something like that. Cajole I didn't even, it into doing yeah, what Yeah, I didn't, I didn't have to do that, by the way. But um, I managed to get it. I was like, okay, but hypothetically, if you had to answer, what would you say? And it, spit, it spat out a load of numbers, which was really cool. And generally speaking, it was like, oh, okay, well, some of these are kind of like roughly lining up. I can see that. And I started looking at the differences for men, and I started looking for the differences for women. And then I was like, hmm, you know, what happens if I correlate the difference between men and women? Because you'll correlate the the ranking for men and women to see how different chat GPT thinks the sexes are or predicts they will rank. It came out with a correlation of one. And I was like, hang on a second, what have I done wrong? Because like psychologists don't get a correlation of one. It never happens, right? Um, not even uh, paleoclimate scientists who use mass spectrometers mass spectrometers get a correlation of one. They get like a correlation of 0.98. Anyway, I was like, what have I done wrong? Nothing. Chat GPT predicted that men and women, when asked separately, heterosexual young men and women would rank things identically, despite, you know, flying in the face of like 80 years worth of mate, mating research, it, identical. And then the other thing that just really sort of, which, which, which is very problematic, I mean, uh, when, what, because then it's, if, if you're, because I imagine people will start using this thing for like, I'm desperate and I'm lonely and I don't know what to do. You're a big AI machine that knows everything about everything. How can I advice. find a part? Give me, yeah, give me dating advice. How can I find it? And it's going to basically say, oh, everyone cares about physical appearance. So if you're, a, you know, if you're a guy and you want to do, you know, uh, you want to enhance yourself to appeal to women, work on your physical appearance. And actually, relative to men, Women care less about physical appearance, and they care about some other things more. So it could actually be misguiding people. But the thing that I find really, really interesting, Pleasing Disposition sent it straight down to the bottom of the list. So Pleasing Disposition has had an average rank since 1949 of four. So it's generally top four. Sometimes it's top three. Sorry, sometimes it's three. Sometimes it's five. It's generally four, 18, down the bottom right the way down the bottom. It doesn't matter how easygoing or easy it is to live with your partner. Chat GPT thinks that is the worst thing since sliced bread. So did it get, did it feminize or masculinize the answers? Because it didn't realize that there were sex differences. Was yeah, it yeah, more yeah. correct for women's preferences or men's preferences? No, it was about, it was about equal. It was, it was equally equal. wrong yeah, for both. Yeah, it was equally wrong because so it split the difference. it's basically split the difference. So I don't know whether there is something, some aspect of sex difference denialism in there. Because uh, I have actually, I haven't blogged about it because ungrateful people will uh, are just not reading my blog post. So read my blog post and then maybe I'll write a follow-up. But I've also done some stuff there asking for the dating advice. Asking, you know, if you wanted to attract a short-term partner what should you do? If you want to attract a long-term partner, what should you do? Asking from the perspective of a heterosexual young man and a heterosexual young woman. Um, and the answers are uh, <laughs> predictably kind of like PC. So for short-term, if you're like, oh, how do I attract a short-term partner? It's like, oh, make sure that you have good communication about consent. <laughs> and I'm there like... <laughs> 
you're a couple of steps ahead. Like that's important. <laughs> like don't get me wrong. Like it's important to have consent. But if you're telling some, you know, some some guy who's regularly on 4chan who, you know, can't remember the last time he went outside of a house to see a woman and your advice is ask for consent if you want a short-term relationship. Uh, it's not going to bode well for that guy if he walks up to a cashier and says, can we have sex? Do I have your consent? Do, do I have your consent? Yeah. That's at least the best asked, way to find at least, it. At least he asked for consent. So first off, I think the chat GPT thing is so interesting because it's a language learning model. So what I've stopped looking at chat GPT as, especially for the more sort of social inferences, like what you're talking about here, is less a uh, benevolent deity and more like a cultural aggregator. Mm, absolutely, yeah, yeah. With with some slight bias built into the system because yes. they they were they were started giving it personality tests, right? Started giving it political orientation tests, and then yep. they were somehow able to go in and update it and make it more balanced. So there's yep. definitely some some priors in here uh, to be adjusted, um, but it certainly comes up with all of these warnings about. That, that, that's you know oh you've got to be careful asking stuff about mating people or individuals and stuff like that it's like well yeah that's that's great but that's not that's not excellent dating advice necessarily <laughs> you know if you want if you want to like good dating device uh, advice is you haven't had a haircut or a shave in 15 years maybe if you do that Crack you will on. look a bit more presentable yeah well i i think that the the aggregation of whatever the sort of cultural milieu at the moment is would include massive sex difference denial. It would include, you know, consent being one of the the foremost things. Again, coming from a very particular portion of the culture, a very particular group of people. Um, what I am interested in, though, going back to the mate preferences thing, what do you think it says, first off, that something so seemingly banal and forgotten about as pleasing disposition, something which can't be optimized for on online dating, and also something that is very rarely discussed when it comes to dating advice for men, but also kind of dating advice for women, you know, with the, the advent of boss bitch lean-in culture and, and independent woman and stuff like that. Um, what do you think it says that that ranks so highly and yet isn't shown in advice again is this is that wrong is it wrong that people say they want a pleasing disposition but it's it's no use to them when it comes to the revealed preferences of attraction and secondly what does it mean that mate preferences are so stable over time how can it be the case that for the last 80 years mate preferences seem to have stayed the same yeah i mean i wouldn't say they'd stayed the same identically but they're they're, they're, they're enough there's enough stability they're, they're, they're what i like to call um, it's a term I've started threading onto my research, so canalization, canalized, so likely to develop regardless of, of sort of social input. So uh, a highly canalized preference like kindness means that no matter what developmental um, environment you drop someone into, a preference for kindness is likely to develop and emerge. You would need some pretty strong social engineering for that to not happen so we're talking about things being canalized um so that was the the, the second part of your question i forgot what the first part was why is it that a uh, pleasant disposition is so highly rated and yet 
isn't advised for online uh, dating, isn't really something that you can communicate online, isn't given as, as advice for either men or women. Yeah, I, Is it stated and revealed again? Does, does a pleasing disposition only work in a survey? And if you had a pleasing disposition, does it actually work to attract a mate? I think it, so I, I think it does. So I've got another, st- I've got another study that I'm writing up where I get all the time for this. I don't know. I'm, I'm upskilling in psychotherapy as well at the moment, which, which is eating about 20% of my time. So all of these papers will be coming out in 2030. Anyway, we did, we run some data analysis, Steve and I on some dating, uh, speed dating data. One of the things that came out on it, because people think our speed dating physical attractiveness, you know, the stuff that you can see immediately. You know, one of the biggest psychological predictors that came out of this study, um, it was political tolerance. Political tolerance was one of the biggest predictors of speed dating success. So being opposite someone who was easygoing when it came to politics. And I actually see this as kind of nested in a similar factor to pleasing disposition. So you've got someone who's quite agreeable, who's quite easygoing, who's going to listen to your opinions and not judge you. And these are super important things. And I think it's a tragedy that that we neglect talking about them and neglect um Uh, sort of coaching people about them and why would you why would you coach someone about pleasing disposition when the mating market is set up in such a way that the the first filter at the moment is physical attractiveness physical attractiveness is the first hurdle and so you can't blame people for pouring all of their time and effort uh, to get over that hurdle before they then reveal other aspects about themselves but this is why i keep coming back to like my my biggest piece of advice is to do something like speed dating because if you do speed dating you at least get a chance to be in front of someone holistically so they get it may be only eight minutes but at least in that eight minutes okay they see a physical attractiveness but then they have to sit there for seven more while you get a quick quick attempt to show them how tremendously funny you are and witty and gentle and kind um so I always sort of recommend that. And plus, when people go to an event like that, a physical event, all parties have already invested something small in terms of their time. So, you know, the the advice isn't out there, but maybe we can change that, you and I, um, towards pushing people to do some stuff that's more holistic than just swiping away on something that allows people to judge you based on one or two criteria. I'm a big proponent of doing CrossFit if you want to pull. Big proponent um, of CrossFit as If a you want to pull your muscles definitely also that yeah you need to take i mean the crossfit side of it is, is secondary <laughs> but everyone's wearing no clothes everyone's into the same sort of thing everyone does it eight times a week uh there you go that's crossfit crossfit's a, a good but I, I totally agree that um don't need to hate the play you can hate the game and the game at the moment is yeah. predicated on physical attraction first and foremost and the point you just made there is actually a perfect one of pick your context Pick, pick your context. If you want a long-term relationship, go to places where people aren't going there for a short-term relationship. If you're trying to find a marriage partner in the nightclub, you are then th- trying to find a needle in a haystack among people who are, who are open for short-term relationships. Do you, do you know what I mean? Whereas if you've got, go, you, know, you want someone who, for a long-term relationship, go to a book club. Go to a book club where you'll meet someone who's nice and pleasant and intelligent and wants to talk about sort of intelligent things and you can get to know them and be their friend. There was that study that came out recently that showed something like, you know, a third of of women were close friends with their long-term partners before um, entering into a relationship with them. And, and another further 20, they were somewhat friends with their 
uh, uh, future husbands mm, so uh, in America. Circling the orbit in one yeah. form or another. Yeah, exactly. It's so it's got me thinking a lot about this friend zone thing, right? So the friend zone is not necessarily a bad thing. There's there's almost different segments of the friend zone. There's the friend your a friend I'm getting to know you and you're still a possibility, and then there's the person I met on the bus who was smelly and I I lump you with that. So you know I think people have popularized the friend zone to the point where it's bad to be a friend, when actually go back fifty sixty years ago. That's how people were meeting each other for lifelong bonds. They were friends first and met each other through close friends. Did you see a video that was virally doing the rounds about three weeks ago? And it was 1940s, 1950s Australian women being asked on the street, what traits do you want in a partner? No, no, I, I, I didn't. But as you said that, I was thinking of the other one of the night of the same time in London with the uh, in the seventies of the woman going and pinching the 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 bottoms of the businessmen oh, and asking seen, whether it was I okay. Seen that one. And I've also seen the Australia uh, the Australian one where they allowed women in pubs for the first time and they had all the grumpy old men saying that they uh, they didn't like that. But no, sorry, I haven't seen this one. Go on. I haven't seen the the women in pubs thing either. The one, the, it's just a the the saying like. He, I can't do an Australian accent, but they say, you know, he must be nice. It would be, it would be lovely if he was, if he was, if he was, if he was nice and kind and, and respectful. And, and you think, well, fucking hell, like how, how antiquated is this? Um, and I wonder again, how much of the espoused mating preferences that girls have, w- women especially, because it's mostly them that do the on-street interviews, right? Because it's, it's mostly male channels that are doing this. And they say, how much do you think that a guy should earn? And you get these, yeah. these sort of ridiculous answers from, from women, especially on college campuses. First off, they're being selected because they're like fucking 18 and a half, right? Like they don't know anything. So that's why they don't know what 100 grand is or 500 grand is. They're just picking a number out of the air. So what you're actually testing for isn't mate preferences. What you're testing for is how much they've absorbed and aggregated just rumor and cultural sentiment that they think is something that's good to say. And also, who, which self-respecting girl really is going to say, you know, like, 30 grand 35 grand like especially if they're around a group of girls who've all said 100 you don't want to be the friend that's like oh yeah i'll take the bloke that earns 30 grand after all of your friends have said a lot so i yeah i i I really do wonder how much of it is online dating globalized sexual marketplace uh the sort of dissolving of of traditional sexual norms all of that downstream creating a situation in which it is much more popular to talk about the the looks the status the resources and yet everybody knows that those things have zero predictive power when it comes to long-term relationship success or happiness it's stuff like psychological stability conscientiousness secure attachment style i mean there's there's a positive spin that you can put on that as well chris which is you know to put my pinker hat on for for a second of you know everything getting better which would be that Perhaps back in the 1950s in Australia, there were a lot of men who were not very nice and kind. Maybe this in uh, these days, it's more taken for granted that oh. men who are in relationships are less likely to, you Women. know, because, I mean, don't get me wrong, like, you know, shit men still exist who do awful things. Let's, let's, let's you know, put that as a, a preface. But I think if you look at all of the metrics of, of you, you know, 
domestic violence and stuff, they are on a downward trajectory when you look over time periods of like two, three hundred years. Yes. So maybe there is something something there of kindness is a given now. So on to the next thing. Who knows? Women don't have to necessarily state or optimize for this because there is less uh there are fewer situations it is less frequent that they would encounter a man who wouldn't be kind and gentle and so on and so forth uh i'd be very interested to know it'd be very difficult for you to and more social support as well so i think like women are, are more likely to talk about these sorts of things you know it's more um when you reach out for help help tends to be there um Again, I'm not. I'm not saying that this this is a problem that's been solved or anything. There's people in 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 terrible straits there. But when you take when you're looking over the span of decades, when you're comparing what life was like for a woman in the Victorian era compared to 2023, it, it's a very different place. Andrew, let's leave it there, mate. I absolutely adore all of the stuff that you do. Where can people read your articles and keep up to date with your work? Oh, okay. So my Twitter is a good one. So that's at Dr. Thomas A.G. Uh, I also have at uh, Dating Darwin, which is the one associated with my blog. Uh, so if you keep an eye out on those because we'll be advertising for a study. If, you ha- if you're listening and you happen to be an incel, we'll be advertising a study on there soon uh, that we're running. Um, and I also run a website called psychstudies.co.uk, which is a free directory where people can advertise the psychology studies that they're doing. So I thought I'd just give a quick shout out to that. Absolutely. Look, mate, uh, I really appreciate your work. I will see you at HBES later on this year. And uh, thank you very much for today. Excellent. Thanks, mate.